To some, the tragedy at Ruby Ridge brings thoughts of a tyrannical federal government trampling the rights of ordinary citizens. The man at the center of it all, Randy Weaver, is an American folk hero. Today, we're going to hear a different perspective. Today, we're going to hear from the two deputy marshals who were on the ground in the thick of it and telling their story for the very first time. Join me. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Gotzik, and welcome to a very special episode of Chasing Evil. August 2022 marked the 30-year anniversary of the shootings at Ruby Ridge. There have been books, articles, documentaries, movies, which basically paint the Weavers as an American family living off the grid just trying to be left alone. That is, until the federal government entraps Randy and kills the Weavers' 14-year-old son, their dog, and eventually Randy Weaver's wife. This is obviously a horrible and tragic event. But there is another perspective, an important one. And today, you're not going to hear from members of some faceless federal government. Today, you're going to hear from two people, Art and Larry. They were there, and they were involved in one of the two shootings, that of Sammy Weaver. They're going to share their experience with you in great detail. And they're going to tell you how their buddy Bill was murdered by one of the Weaver's friends. There's been so much material produced on this event that it's hard to know who or what to believe. You'll have to decide that for yourself. But do that after you've heard what they have to say. Because in 30 years, Art and Larry have never done a radio interview, a television interview, or a podcast. Until now. I'm honored to welcome two men who received the U.S. Marshal's highest award for valor. Art Roderick, retired assistant director for operations, and Chief Deputy Larry Cooper. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. When the shootings at Ruby Ridge occurred, it was one of the biggest news stories on the planet. I think a lot of people remember the headlines, but the devil's always in the detail. So how did the marshals executing a warrant to arrest Randy Weaver turn into a tragedy and a rally cry to those with anti-government beliefs? This is uh, Art Roderick. And I think one of the things you have to understand is this is a very complex case. Not only the, is the investigation complex, but also the efforts that we did to put this case together to come to some sort of peaceful conclusion. There's a lot of misinformation out there, as Chris had mentioned. That's simply for one reason. It's because back in 1992, we were never able to defend ourselves in the public arena when Weaver first sort of came on the radar Um, He was living somewhere in the Midwest, I think Minnesota or something, Montana. He had a wife, uh, four children. He was a vet. Um, He wasn't in special forces, as we think Mm -hmm. of special forces. He was probably a support engineer, but he did have a military background. He was a veteran and decided to move from Iowa to this chunk of property in Idaho to sort of follow, follow the rules of the 
Illuminati and what you should do and what type of property you should have Mm -hmm. and how you should, you know, plant your own food and be able to preserve it. And this is what you should have for your children for firearms. This is what you should have for a firearm. Here's how many thousand rounds of ammunition. Basically, they said you should have 20,000 rounds of ammunition with you. So this is kind of like what we're looking at. We're looking at an individual uh, who has every right to to go ahead and voice his opinion uh-huh. on what he believes is going to happen with the uh, religious side of what he believed in. He had an apocalyptic Yes, he believed vision. in the revelation, the war, the race war that mm-hmm, was coming. Mm-hmm. And that was whole his whole aspect of everything. He attended the, the Aryan Nation Church several times and listened to everything that was coming out of there. But I think he became somewhat disillusioned because... Although they were talking a good game, they really weren't doing anything. Uh-huh. It's the ones that become disillusioned with these with these types of groups, and and they break off. And okay, what are they going to do now? And that's exactly what happened in this particular case. Right. So what you have is he fell on the ATF's radar. ATF went ahead and contacted him, wanted him to be an informant. Uh, when he sort of refused to be an informant, they went ahead and indicted him. Uh, but he he had sold he had sold some under- sawed-off shotguns to an undercover right uh, officer and had made some very interesting comments to the undercover officer about how he hopes this gets to the inner city and African Americans will end up killing African Americans. Right. That was his sort of his reason for selling the sawed-off shotguns. Mm-hmm. Um, so ATF had something on him. ATF definitely had something on him because uh, they arrested him using a ruse on the side of the road of a disabled car. Weaver pulls up. They slap the cuffs on him. He goes to trial or goes to his initial appearance, gets a date to show up in court, makes bond, goes back to the mountaintop and uh, fails to appear back in March or February 20th of, of 91. Okay. There's a little confusion about his court date. There mm-hmm. was a letter, you know, we started trying, the Marshal Service in Idaho started trying to negotiate with Weaver to get him to self-surrender mm-hmm. uh, based on his failure to appear on that particular court date. And there was a mess up in one of the letters, I think, that the chief deputy out of uh, uh, Idaho had sent a letter to the Weaver family uh, and to Weaver's attorney basically stating, hey, please show up. Mm-hmm. And he had the wrong court date in there. Instead of February okay. 20th, I think he had March 20th. Right. So Weaver took that as some type of, you know, what's the government trying to do to me here? They're messing with the court dates. Right. You know, this sounds like a, a game they're playing. I can't trust them. It's the big U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how uh, it ended up coming to the Marshal Service because once he failed to appear— uh, in court, after his initial appearance for his court date, the court went ahead and issued a warrant for his arrest based on failure to appear. Mm-hmm. The failure to appear warrants, all of them across the United States in federal court, come to the U.S. Marshals. That's U.S. Marshals' jurisdiction to go out and arrest uh, people that fail to appear for their court date. Right. So this is so far normal. It's routine. You get uh, happens thousand times a day. All over right. this country, okay. the failure to appear warrants are issued by federal courts, and it comes to the local marshal's district office mm-hmm. to go ahead and find these individuals and arrest them. Right. 
So that's kind of like how we got involved. There was a lot of information already out there at, at that point in time from ATF relating to his possible military background and the fact that he could very possibly know how to set up booby traps and he's very well versed in special forces type right. uh, reconnaissance and operations. Um, and while he was attached to a special forces unit, he had never gone through the assessment yeah. selection and never gone through the special forces schools to, yeah. to learn that yeah. trade. As I recall, I think he was probably attached to a special forces unit, but mm-hmm. he was not right. a special forces operator. Right. Got it. Okay. He was a support staff, uh, which still is raises a red flag. Okay. Uh, anybody that's been in the military, I mean, obviously they know how to handle a weapon. Um, so you have to take that into consideration, but a lot of this information sort of, sort of cascaded on each other and grew to this, oh my gosh, this guy's special forces. Right, right. This guy knows what he's doing. He's got booby traps. He's got all kinds of traps set up. Elevated to Rambo status. Right, exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. And, and one of the things that the Marshal Service was tasked to do was to find out exactly Okay, what is this guy's background? What does he know? What he do- what doesn't he know? Right. Uh, the Marshal Service in Idaho at that time went ahead and started doing, constructing this background, and it asked Special Operations Group to come in, and this was this was like in the ninety to ninety one. 1990 to 1991 time frame. Our special operations group went up there, talked to a bunch of people, never really got up close and -hmm. personal to Weaver other than talking to some associates. There was a lot of complaints from the neighbors uh, that he was stealing water hoses. He was interfering with a lot of their daily life up Mm -hmm. there on the mountain. Mm -hmm. You know, we were getting those complaints uh, quite a bit. And sort of uh, what kind of brought it to a head once he started getting publicity in the local press and then also in the national press, specifically with Geraldo Rivera. Once it started getting that type of publicity, basically the judge, the federal judge who issued the warrant in Idaho started telling the marshal's office in Idaho, hey, you got to do something about this. And in the meantime, over that time from 90 to 91, the marshal's office in Idaho had mailed letters to Weaver trying to get him, talked to Weaver's appointed attorney, tried to get him to surrender, mm-hmm. uh, talked to several neighbors to deliver messages to Weaver to try to get him to surrender. So the idea of force was non-existent at that point. They were just trying to, you know, get this guy to do it on his own and, right. uh, you know, his he and his family remained safe. Right. At that exactly. Point. That's We, we weren't yeah. even thinking about any of right. this stuff. So what happened, because of all the pressure from the federal judges or the federal judge there in Idaho, the District of Idaho came to headquarters specifically to the fugitive unit. At the time, I was the chief of domestic operations. The case kind of fell to us, and I got tagged with it sometime in January of 92 to go ahead and be the uh, headquarters representative in sort of managing the case because it involved a lot of human resources and a lot of financial resources mm-hmm. also. So I had worked up a budget on how we were going to handle this, how we were going to do surveillance, uh, what the amount of people we needed, the type of equipment we needed. Uh, and that, this, and you, you needed all of these assets because you knew he was armed. You knew he he had said, "I'm not going." Yes, this is when we well we had got the letters. The wife wrote the majority of the correspondence. So the right, Vicky, for those people yeah. who aren't who aren't familiar, 
Vicky wrote uh, some letters to the attorney general. And Vicky I guess? Weaver wrote some letters to not only the marshal's office in Idaho, but also to the attorney general of the United States at the time. Saying uh, basically, we will not follow your Ill- illegal issues you have with my husband. Uh, basically, a lot of scripture being quoted in uh-huh. these letters. Basically, call the attorney general at the time. It was Janet Reno. You know the horror of Babylon. Um, those letters have all been put into evidence right. and, and basically showed the amount of time, effort, and energy that we put in to get this to a reasonable and safe ending that mm-hmm. unfortunately did not occur. Right. Um, Chris, it was, it was the children, and it was the biggest concern. Yes. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he posted Bond, when he made Bond, he signed an agreement that he would not possess any firearms. Uh-huh. But he had all of his children armed, and he was armed. Right. Uh, it, it was a dangerous situation, and uh, I know everybody really went over it because we were concerned for the children. Yeah, and that was the key. We were getting that message from the Department of Justice and from uh, Director Hudson at the time mm-hmm. that whatever we do, we have to come up with some plan that does not involve the children, mm-hmm. which became very, very, very difficult mm-hmm. because they were together all the time. Uh, we had submitted several operational plans that got turned down. Do you remember what some of those the yeah, potential? Yeah, we, we had, you know, we had, uh, this was basically done after we had, like, done some physical surveillance and some camera surveillance of them and how they responded on a daily basis and what was their usual routine every day. And when you say responded, yeah. you mean? If neighbors came up or people came up the driveway, he would have what I call an armed response that he would do every single time. And his whole, his, just just Randy Weaver or the no, whole family? the whole family to include Kevin Harris. Kevin Harris was a friend. Kevin Harris was a friend and associate who admired Weaver in his stance he was taking mm-hmm. uh, against the government, which is fine. I right. mean, nobody has a problem. I mean, that's what this country's built on. You can say what you want. You can basically do what you want as long as it's legal. Mm -hmm. And uh, none of us had any problem with it, but obviously it weighed a lot into what our operational planning was going to be, that he was a white separatist or a white supremacist, which is just semantics. Right, right. Um, And, uh, you know, that was pretty much one of the first confirmed things that we were able to do is that he did believe in white supremacy. Right. And you had mounted some surveillance cameras to monitor their response surreptitiously. Yeah. So we had posted two cameras, one on what we call the North Ridge, one what we call on the on the West Ridge that looked into a specific area of the mm-hmm. compound. So the North camera gave us a wider view of of the compound area. Right. And the camera that was like a mile away on the west side uh, gave us a very specific view uh, through an opening of trees of the rock area where they would respond to. Uh-huh. One of the things that you read and uh, time to debunk, the U.S. Marshals were trespassing on the, Weaver, <laughs> on the Weaver's property. And the reality is what? We hear that all the time. <laughs> Anytime anybody gets in trouble, we're trespassing. The bottom line is we had an active, uh, valid arrest warrant for Randy Weaver. That was his property. And because we had the arrest warrant, we had every right, as we do, and I would say probably 90% of our fugitive cases, that we have the right to go into that property because they're the owner of that property. Mm-hmm. So as long as the property is owned by the person on that arrest warrant, right. we have the authority to go in and effect that arrest. Okay. Okay. So that's the bottom line. There's no right. trespassing 
There's none of that. We right. had an active uh, federal warrant. So Cooper is exactly right. The kids and the weapons were the key because, uh, as Coop had mentioned, part of his bond was that he would not possess firearms. Right. And obviously, we were able to prove that, prove that he had firearms uh, in his possession. From the uh, look of the pictures, he may have had, I want to say, I mean, I could be wrong, but it looked like somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 18 yes, different firearms. Easily, shotguns, and assault rifles, 20,000 rounds of ammo. Yes. Yep. That's about right. Yep. Okay. Um, which is fine if you're legally... Right. Possessing them, nobody has a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. Right. But uh, part of his bond was he wasn't supposed to be in possession mm-hmm. of firearms, and here we are watching him on camera with a rifle and a sidearm. Right. So each they member should him, Yes. They should have charged him with every count that they had. Yes. Every mm-hmm. count that we saw him on camera with a firearm would have been a charge. Right. Uh, and, 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 Chris, we also had intelligence that he wanted to kill a bit. Well, that yeah. weighs heavy into the calculation of the plan then. Yes. Sure yeah, yeah, yeah. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. And every morning, like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, we'd go up the mountain. Sometimes we'd be on his property actually eyeballing surveillance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the time we were checking on the cameras and we had generators that were running cameras. We had solar panels set up trickle charging the marine cell batteries that ran the cameras so there was maintenance kind of going on the whole time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. plus we would go up there and dump the video from that particular day and go back and watch it and see what he was doing up there one of the things that i thought was really interesting was you guys were counting every time you saw the weavers you were looking how they were were responding to different uh, approaches and just to their environment. And you came up with some interesting statistics that I think obviously weighed into your plan as well. Yeah, what we did is we took all the surveillance logs and the daily reports and sort of combined them together to come up with sort of how many times we saw them, how many responses they made in this particular time frame. So we're talking about from April 20th of 92 to May 11th of 92. What we actually saw was Randy Weaver, we saw him 96 times. Mm-hmm. During that time frame, in the surveillance cameras, uh, 72% of the time he was armed. Okay. Vicki Weaver, we saw her 44 times in the uh, surveillance camera videos, and 52% of the time she was armed. Sarah Weaver, who was at the time, I believe she was 16, uh, we saw her 215 times, 38% of the time she was armed with some kind of either sidearm or rifle. Sammy Weaver, who was 13 at the time, uh, we saw him 267 times, 
84% of the time he was armed with either a Ruger Mini-14, which we saw quite a bit, which is an assault-type mm-hmm. uh, two two three round rifle similar to uh, an M4 or an M16. So the 14-year-old was armed 80... 84% of the 84% time. 84% of the time. Of the 267 times we saw him uh-huh. on the surveillance camera, he was armed 84% of the time. Right. Rachel Weaver, who I believe was 11 at the time, we saw her 219 times. She was armed 31% of the time. Mm-hmm. Kevin Harris, who was the associate, he mm-hmm. was 24 years old at the time. We saw him 59 times, 66% of the time he was armed. Uh, and, of course, we have video of them walking around during these armed responses, mm-hmm. running from the house out to the rock ledge at the top of their driveway on the edge of their property. So they had pre-positioned uh, yes. uh, posts. They so had pre-positioned posts, correct. We observed them on those 28 times that they responded in that three-week time period. Uh, we observed them kind of doing the same response every single time. If they heard something or somebody was coming up their driveway, mm-hmm. Uh, or the dog was barking, mm-hmm. uh, they would respond out to this rock outcropping. And we also observed a couple different times neighbors coming up, dropping food off. The reason they were watching his activities was see if he was ever away from the family. Right. So we could preposition people there to someplace he went without the kids and we could take him then, but that, that just didn't occur. Yeah, you're exactly right, Coop. I mean, we, we looked at that so many times. That, that is he, he never left the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the great job ATF had done arresting him in the first place, using the broken down vehicle right. ruse, right. he was sort of onto it. So right. he knew that any time he left that mountain, he could be arrested. Right. So he never left. I never saw the, the family leave. I didn't see the wife leave. Kevin Harris was the only one that really left the mountain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we had discussed several times. Uh, arresting him. I, I believe ATF said that when they pulled that roost and arrested him, uh, Vicky tried to take a female agent's gun from her. Yes. Yes. And, and to me, if you're asking me who was the driving force behind all this, it was right. Vicky Weaver. Right. She wrote all the letters and she basically told them what to do. Uh, I, I've read several letters that she had written to her family mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the letters that went to DOJ we had access to just speckled with this type of, you know, Old Testament type language. Mm-hmm. Joshua the Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's the sign he had out in front of his uh, uh, house at the base of his driveway. Every every knee shall bow to Joshua the Messiah. So it's very much into Old Testament, mm-hmm. which was the race the race war thing that he had come up with but she to me uh and anybody that looked at any of this stuff was really sort of the driving force behind mm-hmm. it all he had some friends that lived in the town that would 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 bring them up supplies on a regular basis mm-hmm. we never interfered with any of that um we probably could have uh sort of did a siege thing but we we, we didn't want to tip our hat this early on um, and you were still mitigating. And we were still worried about the kids. Yeah, right, yeah I mean, right. they, they had a newborn. There was a newborn on the property. This brought in the whole religious aspect of them. There's a shed on the property that we call the birthing shed. Mm-hmm. And according to their religious beliefs, if Vicky had had a male child, she would have only spent, I think, two weeks or a week in the birthing shed. Because she had a female child, she spent a month in that shed and was not able to come back 
into the house. Now that rolled over to Sarah. Uh, Sarah was having her menstrual period, right. and for that week that she was having that, she would have had to. She stayed in the birthing shed, mm-hmm. which came about to one of our operational plans. Right. To wait for her to have her period, she goes out to the birthing shed. We can grab her, bring her down the mountain, give right. her child custody, give her to the state of Idaho to watch out for her, and then we would grab whoever was bringing her food. Uh-huh. So that would eliminate two or possibly three kids off the property. Right. Uh, that plan was tossed by both headquarters and the Department of Justice. Okay. But I think it shows the level of what we were trying to right. come up with innovative ideas to go ahead you know we talked about sleeping gas you know we talked about but they didn't want to do that you know Mm -hmm. because we were able to get at one point i was actually under the rear of their house on the side of the mountain that they never covered because it was mainly sheer cliff and woods and i had been up under their house i could actually hear them talking inside you know or you you told me about your briefing to doj and uh, you'd propose a plan, and they would say, "What will you do if one of the children, you know, points a gun at you?" Right. And you'd say, "Well, we had to defend ourselves." Right. And they said, that, "That's unacceptable." They would always ask that. Coop's right. Well, what happens if a kid points a weapon at you? The kid's no longer a kid if they've got a Ruger Mini 14 in their hands. Right. They're just as deadly as any adult. Right. It was very difficult because you heard the percentages that I ran through. Right. Okay. So when are we going to catch the 80? the 15% that the kid wasn't wearing a firearm at that time. And not to say that he wasn't. Maybe we couldn't see the sidearm that he carried all the time because Mm -hmm. he had a shirt or a jacket on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I I could probably safely say at this point that he was probably armed with a sidearm 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So when are we going to find that time when Randy Weaver, who was armed 72% of the time, Vicky, who was armed half the time, over half the time. Sammy Weaver, who was armed 84% of the time. And Kevin Harris was armed 66% of the time. So when are we going to find one of those times where none of them were armed? Mm -hmm. It was impossible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely impossible. Mm -hmm. And anybody that watched the hours of surveillance video that we have would come to that same conclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's an additional layer of complexity. Yes. So are we back? May of uh, 92. Right. So May, June, July, uh, I am querying anybody I can to include Special Operations Group, to include Billy Deegan, to include Coop at the time. Like I said, I've been to several operational conferences. I had talked to other agencies about this. How would they pull something off like this? I gave them all the restrictions we were under, and nobody, not one of them, could come up with a different plan than what we eventually came up with. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So back before we went back up there in August, uh, we had, in that time frame, that three- or four-month time frame, I had come up with a uh, working with Dave Hunt, uh, in Idaho, right. and with several other people, we had come up with an operational plan that involved the Marshall Service purchasing. There was two chunks of property for sale next to Weaver, and we had looked at purchasing the closest one to him, which probably would have put us 100, 200 yards from his house okay. in that chunk of land. So we actually had a marshal that was going to go undercover. We had an old beat-up vehicle we had got from government services agency that we were going to install cameras in. We were going to put CN gas. 
inside the vehicle so that when we actually befriended him and he got in the vehicle with our undercover deputy, we could take him down at that point. So we had all this pretty much worked out. Uh So the team that I had up there for those three months prior in March, April, May, I couldn't get any of them. They were all busy at the time. So basically Dave Hunt and myself had to put a new team together. We wanted to include special operations group. We needed a medic and we needed a tech. So we had... Um, and, the, and the old team went back to their respective districts whatever they were throughout doing. the country. Correct. Okay. So we had a new tech come on. Joe Thomas, Frank Norris was our new medic. Coop was representing both SOG and operations. Uh, Billy Deegan was the SOG guy, and I was the headquarters right. guy from the Fugitive Unit. And SOG is Special Operations Group. Special Operations Group, which just celebrated their 50th anniversary last October. We had put that team together August 5th or 6th. We got back up there. Uh, We did briefings for three or four days. And then our first day back there to get the team uh, acquainted with the area uh, because Coop and Billy and Frank Norris and Joe Thomas hadn't been up there before. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was decided that we would split into two three-person groups one would go to the Northern Observation Post we, where we had that camera before, and right. that would have been Dave Hunt because he knew the area, uh-huh. uh, Frank Norris, the medic, and Joe Thomas, the tech. Right. So with me on my side, uh, we split up at the what eventually became known as the Y area. That was sort of our rallying point. Uh, one team went up north, and then we proceeded shortly behind them uh, to go up and look at some areas that were a little closer to the Weaver property, because when you when you when you have an undercover operation like that, uh, for any federal team doing it, you have to have surveillance on your undercover deputy. So we had to establish surveillance points for Special right. Operations Group to cover our deputy that was up there undercover. Right, and that's how any standard uh, surveillance uh, operation goes when you put an undercover in. Right. Okay, that's what we were doing. Okay, we were up there to do a surveillance to look at sites where we could pre-position special operations group deputies to cover our undercover deputy. That was the whole operation that particular day. And that day was August. August twenty-first, probably around one o'clock. So we had come up with this operational plan, and I think initially between conversations, Coop and Billy Deegan and I had is that hey. We'll go up, we'll take a look at this, but probably the bottom line is this is going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do. Right. Because of the terrain, the lack of communication capability, um, and and the fact that we would have probably five or six deputies really out there on their own with no way of communicating back. Mm -hmm. As much as cooperation we got from the local sheriff, they didn't want to be involved because they lived in that area. Right. Well, Chris, I remember that day that we went to the flower field yeah. and then we cut it up toward to the road that went past Weaver's place. Yeah. And we took that road up to a, to a cliff area Yes, because we were going to have to put these people in and uh, they made a big deal out of us throwing rocks down the hill. But we knew that if you put people up there and the way the noise carries, yeah. if they were moving around, you know, rocks are going to fall. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we were far enough away that the dog wouldn't alert. Right, and right. we dropped two or three rocks down there, and the dog never alerted. One no, time. nothing ever happened. It was close enough, you know, you could see the place. 
Yeah, it was it was their place. target range because I right. had been up to that area several months before and crawled into this little area and I look up and I said, "Holy shit, there's a target right above our heads here." So they were doing target practice from their house or their right. compound area into this area that we had figured out was a pretty good area to watch. Okay. And that's the reason why because it was a pretty good area for them to shoot at, too. Yes. So when you know you felt you failed to mention that to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was 2.30 a.m. when you guys departed to go on this uh, surveillance operation to figure out position points for yes. your SOG guys to cover your undercover guy. Yeah. And this is obviously what will turn into the critical moments that this yeah. whole thing built toward. We got up to the Y area. The Y area has been written about. Yeah. It is referred to. I'm going to try to get some pictures, and we'll put it up, up on, the, on the website. Just to explain what the Y area was and how you came to it and how people should think of it in their mind. Okay, so what you have is you have a, a pretty steep mountainous area at the base of the mountain where the Rouse had their own little cabin. Okay, right. okay they allowed us to do... A lot of our surveillance operations out of there. All right. So if you go to the right of the Rouse cabin, there's a driveway that goes up the side of this mountain, kind of switch back okay. up the mountain. Right. Then you hit this Y area, okay, and the trail goes to the left and to the right. To the left is the fern field that Coop had mentioned earlier, where we walked up into, hung a quick right, and then got up on the switchback road above Weaver's property. Okay. Okay. Um, so the fern field is to the is to the to the left to the left to the right is sort of what we called Weaver's driveway that was direct up to the Weaver's property that got into the lower garden area and then hit their driveway where they positioned themselves at that rock outcropping. Okay. Okay, and you'll see the photos um, of at least the trail that goes up to their house. Um, I don't know if it depicts the Y, but um, a lot of the photographs that you are probably going to see online. Uh, was after the area was cleared of some brush. So it doesn't look like exactly yeah, what we point. saw on that's the 21st. Yeah. Because, and Coop, jump in here, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. There was so much vegetation up there. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's something, too, that you got to realize is that both Coop and I gave our statements, but none of the statements basically says, I saw Coop do this, I saw Artie do this, it was more what we heard and what we saw happening in front of us that we could actually see. So when the incident we're about to talk about happened, what time What time was it? It's like 9.30 in the morning. Okay. Um, now, let's walk real slowly because yeah. this is, this yeah, is this where is everybody, every, what everybody talks about, where there are a lot of uh, uh, misunderstandings yeah. and miscommunication and bad information. And now you're going to get it from the two, two gentlemen who were there. So we, we um, get our gear on, we get up, drive up to right. a place where we can park our vehicles. Um, we basically walk in. We're at the Rouse cabin area. Mm -hmm. uh, it's t probably 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. We start humping up the, the, the main driveway. Right. Okay, that goes from the Rouse cabin up the side of the mountain. It's, I don't know, Coop, probably a mile and a half. To the Y area, uh, two miles to the uh, Y area. I, I'd say it's about a mile, somewhere near a mile and a quarter. Mile. Yeah. Okay. So that 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 gets us to the Y area, and that's okay. sort of like 
where where our rallying point and our breakoff point is. And it's far enough away from the Weaver house where we can actually stand and talk a little bit mm-hmm. and get down what we want to get down. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Dave, Dave uh, Hunt, Frank Norris, and Joe Thomas go up to the uh, Fernfield area, right. turn right, and are headed to where we had the camera on the northern observation point, okay. which is quite a ways up the side of the mountain uh-huh. so we wait a little while uh, and coop i don't know did did they get up there before we started moving they were pretty close to being up there when we started moving because okay. we wanted them to have a view inside the mm-hmm. compound to let us know if anything's going on. right so they're headed up to northern observation point yeah. and at this point you uh art roderick larry cooper and billy deegan were together right we basically went up to the fern area hung a quick right got higher up on that switchback road, which is on the north side of the Weaver property. Right. And we were checking out that particular area where they had the target practice, and nothing was moving anywhere. Right. It was all quiet, you know, of course, middle of the night, uh, early a.m. It's getting on towards 9 o'clock. Let's get the hell out of here. Right. Um, it's time for us to go because we really didn't stay up there uh, during heavy daylight hours. Mm-hmm. We were generally, unless we're on the cameras, right. you know. So we we were leaving, and we cut down the north road. We saw the sign at the base of the driveway, uh, every knee shall bow to Yahshua the Messiah. Uh, so we got to the base of the driveway and started heading out, and a vehicle drove into the valley. Like, I mean, it sounded like it was coming up the friggin' driveway. That's right. how weird the sound is and right. of course this is frank goes over the radio there's a vehicle coming yeah because he can vehicle. hear it up there so we're thinking holy shit there's they found us and there's supporters coming up behind us that's mm-hmm. what we thought the dog came running out of the house they came out on their standard response because the car was because the car sounded like it was coming up the right. driveway and so they went into their response mode that you guys had observed so many times before absolutely okay and it was the dog kevin harris sammy weaver and randy weaver so they could see us from the rock outcropping where they responded then they started chasing Uh and that's when i jumped up and was like let's go got it we started running through the open area till we hit the wooded area Mm -hmm. and i mean it was like hard going right coop i mean we were running through bushes, little trees, and jump in, Cooper, yeah. if you... Go ahead. Well, I, I said, I'll take the rear, because I got a silenced MP5. And at this point, if you can help it, you're not going to engage in a firefight. No, we're not going to engage. We were trying to get out of the area. In fact, I think they uh, went ahead and measured how far we had run, and I think we'd run at least a quarter mile off the property, off mm-hmm. the Weaver property, mm-hmm. to the Y area. Right. Once, once we did the shoot down to the fern field and hung the left. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I don't think we actually saw them split up, okay? Because okay. once they were on us, we were just moving. Right. We were sprinting to get out of that area. And Coop took the rear position. I was in front leading them to the fern field and down to the Y. And uh, Billy was kind of in the middle. Right. And uh, we're talking about shooting the dog. You know, we're, as we're running. Because? Because the dog is leading them right to us. Mm-hmm. The dog is on us, barking like crazy and basically leading them right to us and eventually to our position. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get down to the fern field. We hang that quick left. I'm leading 
Billy second, Coop's third, and Coop's talking about getting into a defensive position. So I'm to find a defensive position because I'm not getting shot in the back because it's straight shot down through there. Right. And it's just got canopy over it, but you can see down that trail. Yeah. And I didn't want to get shot in the back running from somebody. Mm-hmm. So I said, find a defensive position and we'll, we'll do that. For some reason, I looked off to the left coming down from the Y, and there's Randy Weaver with a long gun and a sidearm on. He wasn't looking at me at first. And then I put my gun up there and said, Artie, because the dog was barreling down on me. So I said, Artie, and Artie challenged him, said, freeze U.S. Marshals. And that's when he turned and ran. I'm standing there. Billy moves into the woods, and I got the dog out here. Now, I don't want to shoot this dog. I had my gun, and I was poking it at him, and he was running. He would come around me. When he got around me, he, he went on by me. When he did, I went over to get with Billy. Because uh, Kevin Harris and, and Samuel were walking down the trail. I uh, get into the woods. There wasn't room for me with Billy. was by a trunk. Uh, tree trunk. Down yeah. tree trunk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went past him, and I found a place that had a, it looked like a damn foxhole. I mean, it was rock all around. So I jumped into it, and I called on the radio. We had headsets. I said, Billy, come on down here. I got a better position. He didn't move because I guess they were so close on him. When he didn't answer me, I looked, and I could see the shadow breaking as they were walking through you, I could see them, the sun, you know, was being blocked by them. Right. And, uh, they got in front of him and Billy said, freeze us marshals. Well, Kevin Harris turned and he had the rifle he shot. And I didn't know whether he hit him or didn't hit him, but he started to put another round in there. I, I, I wasn't going to let him do that. So I put rounds over his head because I didn't want to kill him. If Billy wasn't hit, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, he does it whenever I, when I shot, he went down like, like I had hit him. And then, uh, when that happened, I saw Billy start to fall backwards. Uh, he was, he was in a kneeling position anyway, and he started falling backwards. So he, he must've been hit. Well, Samuel Weaver come down and got in front of that tree and uh, he hasn't shot. He hasn't shot anybody or anything. So I'm not going to shoot at him. And, uh, that's when, um, uh, we started taking some rounds and I see Samuel go up the Y a little mm-hmm. bit and, and we're taking rounds and Billy says, Coop, Coop, I need you. And I said, Billy, I'll be there as soon as I get him off her ass. And, uh, I fired where we were taking fire from where I believe we were taking fire from. Mm-hmm. And that's when apparently whenever I hit Samuel Weaver, now I couldn't see him, uh, you know, from my line of sight, I could not mm-hmm. have seen him. But you knew the, uh, the the direction of gunfire. We were taking rounds, yeah. This is all happening in a matter of seconds, mm-hmm. okay? Weaver takes off. I hear the gunshot to my left, and then the dog, everything kind of froze on that first shot that Kevin Harris fired. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of, boom. The dog stopped in front of me, and then that's when I shot the dog. Now, in the interim, Coop, I guess, had fired some rounds off. Of course, we couldn't hear him because he had that suppressed... Uh, weapon with right. him. I couldn't hear it anyway. And then Billy, while he was dying, fired off seven rounds. And in that interim, when Coop told me, get up here, Billy's been hurt, I don't, I was behind some trees laying off the side of a of the road, the berm, mm-hmm. on the lower end of the Y. Mm-hmm. And um, I dove back out into the open, and that's when I got shot. Yeah, I, I, you know, Artie, that, that's a key point there, too. Yeah. Because when I tell you Samuel Weaver was behind behind a tree, 
and you shot the dog. He turned his head and pointed his gun that way and said, you son of a bitch. Yeah. And that's, he, he, I don't know. He I didn't even hear that. He, yeah. He moved up. Yeah. He and, moved and up into the woods and that's when he shot me. And then Billy shot him. The bullet hit the stock of the Ruger Mini 14, chipped a piece of the metal back off. And then the bullet went into his elbow. Mm-hmm. blew his elbow out. Right. He spun around and started running up the trail. Coop laid down, couldn't see him. Coop didn't know, you know, Coop lays down a three-round burst or whatever it was, Larry, and you can jump in. The kid ran into Coop's three-round burst or whatever he fired up into the area where the rounds were coming from. Mm-hmm. So another myth to debunk, nobody actually aimed at Sammy Weaver and killed him. Correct. I couldn't see him. Well, I will say this. I I don't know if Billy saw him and shot him. Okay. We'll never know. Right. Uh, But he did. He was in a shooting position when Mm -hmm. Billy shot him in the elbow. Mm -hmm. Had to be in a shooting position to shoot you. Correct. And and Chris, he's got a lead line across his T-shirt. Right. That's how close he was to being killed. When we got to the emergency room afterwards, they took us immediately to one of the medical clinics in Mm -hmm. the area. I took my tunic which i showed you off and i had a t-shirt underneath and it was a black grease mark right across wow where the bullet had traveled when it when it hit me wow okay um of course we're on a surveillance operation we had no vests on i mean well i i actually talked to billy about that that morning yeah and i said i said billy we're not gonna wear a vest he said i don't see a reason to he said because they got long guns. They exactly. will perforate a vest. You know, and he said, and we're going to be up there on that mountain. Why wear yourself out when something's not going to do you any damn good anyway? Right. So yeah, we had decided not to. Plus, the vests we had at that time w- wouldn't stop a rifle. It would. Nothing no. would. You would. You would have had to basically have, like, bomb tech gear on back in that day. Right. So we had no vests on. I mean, we were there for a surveillance operation. If we were up there to arrest somebody— You'd be all you'd be all kitted up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, Chris, this at this point, you know, he told me he, he got shot at, and I told him not to go on the road. And he said, and "I said, where are you?" He, he said, "I'm down below." He, I said, "Take a rock and throw it, you know, ten, fifteen feet or something, so I know where you are." Mm-hmm. He did, and I told him I told him how to get up to where I was. Right. And by this time, I'm going to, to Billy, and. I see his weapons on safe. I take it, move it, and I try to find the wound. I can't really find the wound because of all the stuff he's got on. So I try to drag him back uh, with the vest. I couldn't. I couldn't do it by myself. Yeah, Billy's and, and he a died. Big guy. He died while I was there. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was alive when I got there, but he died shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And the, the doctor said it was it, it severed his aorta or something, you know. So he said right. it wouldn't have been nothing you could do anyway. Yeah, it was. But yeah, I took the weapon back. I put it on safe and took it back to my foxhole, and I called. Um, Artie was on his way to me, so I called Frank and told them that Billy been hit. And Get down uh, here because yeah. Frank was a medic, they were coming yeah. down. Right. I told them to watch out for fire because they were going to pass through. You know, and they heard, they heard, they heard, they heard the fire too. Right. They heard us yelling "U.S. Marshal" and they heard the gunfire. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. I was just going to say I didn't know Billy had fired. You know. No, I didn't either. Gunfire going around. We got back to the to the uh, place we were staying at, we counted all the rounds, and I saw he was seven rounds short. Yeah. By a magazine. That's when we figured it out. 
So there was some dumb comment made by one of the senators that sat in the hearing and said, well, if it was a fatal wound, how did he keep shooting? I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy's a freaking lieutenant colonel of the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. I mean, give me a break. Just because you get shot, you don't die instantly. You know, that's... And, and, and I'll tell you, looking at his wound, um, you know, the doctors told us he could have been shot in the emergency room and they wouldn't have been able to do anything right. for him. But he had a... a, a and, he stay, and he was in the fight. He was in the fight. Till, he was till in the, the fight. End. He was mm-hmm. in the fight till he died. Mm-hmm. Did you guys uh, render any medical assistance to Sammy Weaver? No, we didn't even know he was shot. We didn't, we didn't, know, no, we didn't know he was shot. Yeah. We didn't know anybody was shot. We thought Kevin Harris was dead. Mm-hmm. We thought Coop had taken out Kevin Harris because of the way he dropped. Chris, also I wanted to say they came down back down at some point and let some long volleys of, of yeah. firearms go. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, now knowing what I know now, uh, supposedly Harris went back up to the cabin and told him that Samuel was shot. Right. So they they came back down, and I think that's probably when. They were angry and they were cursing at us and they were they were yelling letting yeah. rounds fly. Yeah, exactly, Coop. They they were yelling at us and we couldn't figure out what the heck was going on mm-hmm. um, because and, and we didn't know I any was, of this. Right. I uh, estimated uh, at least a hundred rounds, but the other guys that were there with me said three hundred. I I don't yeah. know what the truth is, but I know it was a large volume of rounds being fired at us. We they shot at us initially and then for another 20 25 minutes on and off kind of Mm -hmm. um anytime they heard anything in the woods boom they would unload a volley um and i think they went back after they found uh sammy's body we didn't know any of this at the time but hindsight they find sammy's body and they unload a furious barrage of bullets and then take his body up to the birthing shed and left it in there Right, right right um of course we didn't know any of this was going on we had swore that Kevin Harris was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he wasn't. Uh, I, I couldn't find him on the road. I looked for him on the road and yeah. couldn't find him. So I, I didn't necessarily think he was dead. But he, he, the way he dropped, I thought, sure, I must hit him. Yeah. Right, right. So and I, I, I had an automatic weapon. Yeah. And the total rounds, rounds I fired were five. So that means two rounds on one burst and three rounds on another burst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I fired one round. And that was the dog. Billy fired seven. That was the total of the rounds we expended at the Y area. Mm-hmm. 13 rounds, or mm-hmm. 12 rounds. Mm-hmm. 13 rounds, I guess, math. <laughs> seven, five, and one. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the amount of ammo we expended. Because, I mean, our training is you have to have target acquisition. Right. Um, and... You know, you can lay down some cover fire, which is generally not what we do right. in a federal law enforcement scenario. Right. But in this particular scenario, this is not like your average knocking on a door, no, get right. involved in a shooting. This right. was Billy, Billy said, Coop, Coop, I need you. And I said, I'll be there as soon as I get him off her ass. I wasn't going to spend a lot of time. I needed to get to him, and, and right. I couldn't do any good, but I didn't know that till I got there. Right, 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 right. And, of okay. course, I didn't and know I, where anybody was at this point in time. And I... I'll tell you the truth. I put myself in a very bad place because they had the high ground. Yeah. And Kevin Harris said he saw me standing over Billy. I wasn't standing. I was kneeling because I didn't want to get shot. But I didn't want Billy not to know that I was there for him. Right. Right. The story you've told has come out partially 
and basically depends on what the prosecutor uh, decided to, you know, admit into evidence and the story he decided to tell. But in the court of public opinion, uh, there were two stories. There was your story, which, you know, was a little less known. And there was the Weaver's Harris story, which seems to have gained a a lot of traction in the... uh, uh, that's, social media. That's because our story was never even out there. Right. Tell us how the Harris Weaver story differed from yours. Well, it's according to which version you want to hear about. They've given about half a dozen different versions of what happened. Okay. The thing you got to remember is, you know, at the Y, when the shooting occurred, there was... Uh, a total of five people and a dog. Mm-hmm. Two of those people were killed at the Y. So really, the only ones that know what happened at the Y are Coop and I, Kevin Harris. That's it. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember that. So what is, what is Kevin Harris going to tell Randy Weaver about his son and how it happened? Mm-hmm. He's not going to admit that he fired the first round. I think the main part of their story was they were chasing a deer. Now, okay. how you can make mistake three guys in a wide open area dressed head to foot in camo with rifles as a deer. Okay. So So they were out hunting, they said. Yeah. Well they were yeah, they thought that the dog had alerted to a deer. Okay. Which makes me laugh considering how close they were to us. Right. That they couldn't figure out we were human beings. Because I have yet to see a deer dressed in camo yet. Although right. I'm sure they would like to. Yes. But, but I have yet to see one dressed in head to foot in camel. So the big difference in the story is over who fired first. There's nothing that says any law enforcement agent has to take right. a round first. Right. Okay. So let's go on that. But we're talking Idaho, kind of Wild West, who started it, that type of thing. And that's what, right. that's what they had come up with. While the standoff, the 11-day standoff was going on. They had basically 11 days to write their story. Okay. They had 11 days with their attorney to come up with a viable story. Right. Okay. Which they never testified to under oath until a deposition in like 2000 or 2001 when they deposed Kevin Harris for the civil suit. So they never testified under oath. Eight years later. Eight years later. Right. So they never testified under oath. This was just a story that their attorneys and they had come up with, Mm -hmm. that they were able to espouse from day one. In fact, they espoused even before the friggin' standoff ended. Right. This was their story. Right. Um, Which made no sense. You know, and the other thing is, you see these thousands of pages of documents Mm -hmm. we have. Mm -hmm. We've had DOJ civil attorneys look at this. They've interviewed Coop and I. They've interviewed all of us. We've had other attorneys look at this. We had an attorney that represented us. And everybody that's looked at all this information knows, has said to us, you guys got screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the bottom line. Because, first of all, does it pass a smell test? And second of all, what does the physical evidence at the scene point to when you have two different versions of what occurred? Mm-hmm. That's right. the bottom line. Right. It fits the narrative of government overreach, government assassination, exactly. and that's uh, and a narrative that people who are predisposed are very willing to believe, yeah. uh, especially given what's going on with law enforcement. 
And there was uh, one headline uh, I read in some of your paperwork from a newspaper that said uh, that you guys botched your ambush. Yes. So <laughs> zero, zero for two yes, on that one. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. If we did everything right, it's not a story. Right. So they have to come up making up stuff we did wrong. And that's basically what they did. And in 92, oh, my God, we had the riot act read to us about not talking to anybody. You can't say anything about this. Both the U.S. Attorney's Office couldn't. We couldn't. We were on basically a gag order from the Department of Justice. Uh, so our story couldn't get out there. It right. never got out there until the trial. And by then, this fake story right. that they had put forward had become almost like this is what happened. This is ground truth. This is ground truth. Right. And, because, and the jury nullification actions that were going on. Right. What happened with the jury? Whenever we started testifying in, in Boise, we noticed that there were people who were putting flyers on everybody's windshield that was parked in the, in the courthouse parking lot. Yeah. And it basically says, you don't have to obey the law. You can do this. Yeah. You know, you don't have to buy, go by the jury instructions or whatever. You can do this because it's wrong. They were trespassing or whatever. Yeah, they had all these false claims about trespassing and spying and, and you know, inferring that we were illegally doing something, right. which made me laugh because right. all you have to do is look at the paperwork, the warrants and all that stuff. Right. But it, 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 was, it was almost like I thought we were on another planet. Like the opposite is the opposite of the truth is supposed to what happened here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. It was like completely bizarre. So how did the Randy Weaver situation conclude? Well, there was they, they brought in a guy, a retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bo Greitz, uh, who has since passed away. They brought him in to sort of be the mediator. There was 11 days where mm -hmm. this standoff happened after Vicky's wife got shot and Kevin Harris was wounded that morning of the 22nd. For those people who are unfamiliar with it, there was one more shooting event Yes. That happened between HRT, uh, FBI HRT, and the Weavers. Right. And will you just, you know, in brief, just summarize that? Yeah, I mean, it was the next morning. The helicopter went up, and our assistant director for operations, Duke Smith, and there was some FBI uh, personnel on board. And the chopper went up to take a look at the actual compound. And uh, the snipers observed the... Harris and Weaver come out to the birthing shed, right. and they observed one of them point a rifle at the helicopter. Uh -huh. That's when the Horiuchi fired his first round. I think he missed, or they got splinters from him hitting the roof of the birthing shed. I believe he was about 200 yards away. Uh -huh. It's a heck of a shot. And the two of them, after that shot happened, Harris and Weaver started running back towards the, started running back towards the cabin. Right. And uh, obviously the families all aware of everything's going on. They hear the shot and uh, Vicki Weaver comes to the door and the door opened outward towards the mountain, mm -hmm. towards the mountainside. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there was a window in the door and a curtain. Okay. She's holding the door open for Harris and Weaver to come in. Weaver is in first. And as Harris comes in, Horiuchi fires a second round, right. which is unbelievable shot for somebody running into uh, an area 200 yards away. He makes the shot. The bullet passes through the window, the curtain, through Vicki Weaver's head, into Kevin Harris's bicep and into his chest. So Harris now has got 
pieces of Vicky in his body right. as the round passes through and then also a bullet that went through his bicep and lodged in his chest. So he gets in, they're doing first aid and all that stuff. And basically with that going on, uh, you know, they found out the wife's been shot. Mm. Um, and then the sort of, you got 11 days of negotiation going on. Right. right. Okay. At that point. Mm. So, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about rules of engagement. Well, uh, law enforcement doesn't work on rules of engagement and rules of engagement. What, what, just to identify what the controversy was. The controversy is this, that the FBI and maybe possibly our assistant director for operations, Duke Smith, changed the rules of engagement. Now, rules of engagement is a military term, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because every operation that the military does, there's different rules of engagement. Okay. Could be deadly force, might not be deadly force. Okay. Okay. For for law enforcement, it's always the use of force issue or the deadly force policy or whatever you want to call it. But it's our standard use of force where somebody has to be in imminent danger right. of threat of violence or injury to you, your partner, or the public. That's sort of in a roundabout way. That doesn't change based on the situation. Correct. For federal law enforcement. So for some reason, the and I can understand this from an emotional perspective here, we have a highly decorated United States Marshal, Lieutenant Colonel in the Mar Marine Corps Reserve, mm -hmm. AG Award recipient um, that is shot and killed. And of course, everybody's. And Billy was well known and very much liked in the organization mm -hmm. as a true professional, mm -hmm. uh, both from the perspective of being a U.S. Marshal, but also a tactical officer. Emotions are running high, and the Bureau decided to change what they called their rules of engagement for any male with a weapon on the property. Okay. Okay. Um, and at that point, even though Lon Horiuchi was operating under those, I don't know if it was their new rules of engagement, but basically he obeyed the deadly force policy that the FBI has and everybody has in this country, whether you're federal or state or local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So actually this went all the way to the Supreme Court eventually and the Supreme Court made a decision that rules of engagement are a military term not to be used in federal law enforcement situations, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, the first shot that Horiuchi made was a good shot. The second shot was a questionable shot. And the second shot? The second shot killed Vicki Weaver. Killed. Right. So you got to understand that in the interpretation of what eventually happened years later mm -hmm. in the settlement, that's what they came to, that she was accidentally killed. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, because Horiuchi, there's no way Horiuchi could have even seen her other right. than it was an open door right. and they were running into it. <clears throat> so that's what happened on the 22nd. Of course, at that point, they find out the wife's dead. So everything kind of takes a new Look here, we mm -hmm. got kids in the house, an mm -hmm. infant, mm -hmm. uh, a 16-year-old, the 13-year-old's dead, Sammy Weaver, and mm -hmm. an 11-year-old girl mm -hmm. and the infant. So uh, at that point, they start trying to do negotiations with them. 11 days after August 21st, they, they came to some agreement where they would surrender and let this thing work out in the trial side of it. We're going to cut to July 8th, 1993. The trial of Weaver and Harris over the murder of Deputy Deegan is over. The jury brings in their verdict and they acquit 
Weaver and Harris. Harris is also acquitted of all other charges against him. Weaver is convicted on count three and count nine and found not guilty on all other counts. Weaver is incarcerated. I think he did uh, 18 months. What we have here is a trial that you have done a tremendous amount of prep on. Mm -hmm. You were there. The guy who shot and killed your friend and fellow deputy marshal is acquitted. Given the story that you've told it, how do you think they arrived at that verdict? What was the trial like that the jury was able to come to that particular conclusion? The trial itself was decided that it would be done in Idaho, which I'm not sure was the right way to go. Right. Number one. Number two was, I think, you know, we got hindsight now, is that it was a very complicated case to not try to break it up because you had ATF, you had FBI, you had U.S. Marshals. And for a jury, that's very difficult to understand the jurisdictional right. nuances that each agency has. Right. Um, both Coop and I testified. I was on the stand for six days. We stayed there for the entire trial until it started getting near the end, and they sent us home sometime in early July. Mm-hmm. Plus, you had the 4th of July holiday, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so they just said, stay at home. We're coming to the end. Uh, they basically did not want us in Idaho when the verdict was read. So I'm home in, on Cape Cod. Coop is back in were you in Missouri or yes. Jefferson City? I was in uh, Jefferson City. I remember when I got the phone call that they've got a verdict. Uh, it was July 8th. I was with my family, kids, going to the beach that mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Everybody went to the beach. I closed every shade in the house. I'm just sitting in complete darkness waiting to hear the verdict. And uh, it was devastating. I mean, was I completely shocked? No, I wasn't. I knew what we were up against. Idaho, anti-government, big bad U.S. government comes in. We fired first. We started the whole thing. We were trying to ambush him. It was almost like nobody paid attention to anything we said in the trial, Mm -hmm. even though the little bit of physical evidence we had at the time showed that we were telling the truth. Right. They just—and we had heard some rumblings from the jury— that there were some people in the jury that, regardless, that were just anti-government. Right. And wise Big Daddy coming down on this family of four people, five people at the time, um, and doing this to them. I think it got portrayed that the ATF case was weak, that whatever the Bureau did was a complete screw-up the next day, and we're sitting there in the middle. but the jury, I just don't think, could get over the fact that it was a big, bad government coming in mm-hmm. and that we were no different than the FBI and ATF. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the problem was. Uh, and they tried to keep pursuing the fact that we had been trained to testify. Remember that, Coop? Yeah. Yeah, we were trained to testify. Little did they know that every one of us probably spent more hours in a courtroom than any attorney ever did. And we could tell exactly where they were going with every single question because our job was protection of the courtroom. Right. So we would sit in these courtrooms and we'd have U.S. attorneys walking up to us. Well, how did I do at closing? (laughs) You know, on all these other cases. Uh, uh, So were we trained in it? No. Did we know generally what was happening in the courtroom? Yeah, we knew. Right. We knew where they were going. We knew what they were trying to do. Right. 
Um, and it was, you know, they portrayed that. They tried to say, oh, you're trained. You know exactly. Mm-hmm. And you prepped all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to prep the truth. And they didn't testify. It's their right not to testify. Right. But let's remember, they did not test. They never gave any testimony under oath. Mm-hmm. I was devastated. Uh, when we came back off the mountain and went to the hospital, I, the first call I made was to Karen Deegan. Yeah. And I told her that this would be resolved and justice would be rendered. And I lied to her because it sure that wasn't rendered. Yeah. And Billy Deegan and I took the same bus from Jacksonville, Florida to Glencoe where we first entered the Marshal Service together. And then he was a, a Marine. I was a Marine. We both went in special operations group in the same class. You know, he was like a brother to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were close as, as two people could be in special operations group. We went on all these details together. We always roomed together whenever you had to room somebody. And uh, we were that close. Yeah. It, it took me 10 years before I saw myself in a mirror. Yeah. This had a devastating effect to me um, because I, and, and then, you know, I had a dream. And in this dream, Billy was talking to me and uh, he and I had quite a few conversations, but I, I said, I'm sorry, Billy. And he says, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> Like he would. Have. I mean, that's just yeah, what he was probably thinking, that, you know. That's he, exactly that how he would say it, too. <laughs> yeah. Billy was uh, a man of few know. words, but when he said something, everybody listened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your story's not over yet. So after the trial, now you're going to get sued. Mm-hmm. You and Larry are going to get sued, and take us take us into that because this. Yeah, is... I mean, after the trial, after '93, there was a couple things that happened after '93. Number one, we were sued. I was just looking at the lawsuit again, Kevin Harris versus Art Roderick et al. Um, and it's odd because when I look at the when I when I look at the lawsuit, it basically talks about what the FBI did. <laughs> right. Um, but. Uh, so that lawsuit went on for several years. And in fact, it was going on right straight through, I think, 2000, when I think finally we got dismissed out of the case. But in that interim between 93 and 2000, in 1995, we were told to come testify before the Senate subcommittee on terrorism. Mm-hmm. And uh, Karen Deegan also came for that. And we testified, I don't know, six hours. We each did an opening statement. They had a little diorama that the Bureau had done that we had referenced as to what was going on. Um, But, hey, it's, you know, these hearings are political more than to do anything with the truth. Um, Harris testified, or Weaver testified the next day. They treated him like this big hero. Um, It was sad. It was sad all the way around, and, and... you know, I think it, you know, for Coop and I both that worked in the Marshal Service, they provided major support to the judicial process and the judicial side, branch of government. Right, right. This was like a kick in the face, um, but it's how our judicial process works. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not right by any stretch of the imagination 100% of the time, um, but it is the best system in the world. Uh, but as you can see, it's fraught with it. Bullshit, lies, and if you're not out there doing your PR stuff in the beginning, 
It's just not going to work out. And Jerry Spence, the attorney from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, is a pro at doing that, and he did it very well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what won him the case. It was the public opinion, not the facts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, that public opinion weighed over into everything, whether it was the uh, testimony, the civil lawsuit, all that. Right. It was public opinion as opposed to any of the actual factual evidence that was gathered up there. And just talk for one second about how you were dismissed uh, out of the lawsuit, because that is the final, because you've had several yeah. kind of validations of your side yes. of the story. Multiple validations. And, and this last one where you were dismissed from the lawsuit was, I guess, the final yeah. validation. I mean, it, in order for anybody to be represented by the government in, in under acting under color of law in your position as a right. federal law enforcement officer, DOJ has to look at the facts and then determine if you are acting under color of law, under your authority, okay? So once the department makes that determination, you are called scoped by the Department of Justice, which means the government will represent you, pay all the law bills, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. actually give you a list of attorneys is what they did. And we picked one guy who was absolutely fantastic, Charlie Leeper, mm-hmm. uh, who represented us very well, was our attorney, I would say, for probably six or seven years while this civil lawsuit was going on, but also made sure he stayed on top of everything that the government was doing. And when it came time for the for the uh, for the lawsuit, the civil lawsuit to start going was the first time, and I believe it was either two thousand. It was definitely before nine eleven. Um, uh, that I think it was either ninety nine or two thousand that our attorney was able to depose Kevin Harris under oath the first time, and Kevin Harris gave another version. In fact, I remember Charlie Leeper, my attorney, calling me up afterwards and was like like overjoyed. Because right. he goes, you told another story, a different one, from everything that's been put out there. And I said, yeah. well, shocker, right? Right. Uh, it, was, it was shortly after that uh, deposition that it was decided that the marshals would be removed from the civil lawsuit and that they were negotiating with Weaver's attorneys to succumb to some agreement with the FBI basically right and and what came of it was it's funny I just read the the uh, uh, lawsuit uh, agreement and basically what they agreed to was to pay for the children and uh, Weaver losing the mother accidentally mm-hmm. quote accidentally killed by law enforcement mm-hmm. so the agreement was for the loss of the mother mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. each kid got a million I think Weaver might have got a half a million or something. So that's you got a hundred thousand. Was it a hundred thousand? Okay, that's yeah, where they yeah, came up with that number of three mm-hmm. million or three point one million. Right, right. So that that was kind of like how it sort of ended everything. Um, it was either two thousand, two thousand. It was close to the ten year anniversary um, right. that we were completely dismissed out. There wasn't a lot of press about it. Um, uh, it was sort of the end of it, and I'm not sure at that point in time if the public actually really cared about it. It was mm-hmm. something that happened 10 years prior. But it was always in the mix with Waco. It was always in the mix with McVeigh right. uh, in Oklahoma City, uh, that bombing, uh, because he mentioned it in his manifesto. 
mentioned Waco and Ruby Ridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that was sort of the odd take that went on in this particular case. But it also completely changed the deadly force policy here in the United States. Department of Justice went back. I was on several of those committees when right. we had to rewrite the deadly force policy. It made it much more complicated. And fortunately, about five or six years after that, they basically went back to the old one. Okay. Thank God. Because it was so confusing. Right. Uh, and you can't have a law enforcement officer making a split-second decision worrying about, okay, which scenario am I working under? Mm-hmm. Can I shoot? Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. went back to basically the old policy, right. which is you know, imminent danger to yourself, to others, to the public. Right. Our side has never really been told, and I think we got probably the majority of it out. But uh, you know, the reality of it is I think both Coop and I will agree on this, that we're doing this for Billy Deegan, for Karen Deegan, for Brian Deegan, and for Billy Jr. Um, and we have maintained contact with them, in fact, uh, you know, Billy Deegan's in the law enforcement arena. Brian Deegan is a assistant district attorney now. Uh, obviously, they're much older. They're in their 40s. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say everything worked out, but everything, I think, from the perspective of looking at the Deegan's, the family, uh, that when it's all said and done, I think that it worked out as best it could under the circumstances. I want to, to do anything I can for Billy and, and his family because they are great people. They're what made America what uh, is a, ma- a great country, people like them. And it goes without saying that this episode is dedicated to the memory of... William Francis Deegan. William Francis Deegan. Uh, junior. <laughs> yeah, Junior. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> End of watch... August 21st, 1992. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for your service to this country. Thank you for letting me help you set the record straight. This is one of the most important events in contemporary law enforcement history, and I think today we've added a new and critical perspective to the public record. Thank you very much, Chris, and the work you do is very important, and I appreciate it. Thanks for that, Coop. As you know, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, write a review, or tell a friend. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.